Acts 22, 30 through chapter 23, verse 11. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Well, Luke just did liturgy, as you guys saw, but what you didn't get to see is what we all saw 20 minutes before the service started, which Luke was running in in his shorts. And I thought that this would finally be like some good news, SGN. I'm sure you've all been watching it with John Krasinski where uh, Luke does liturgy, and what you can't see is that he's actually wearing his shorts, but that wasn't the case. Uh, Luke wasn't wearing shorts. He got his, his, uh, his slacks on before we started, but it made me think anew uh, of the things that have been a lot of fun to consider uh, over this past week. One of those has been some good news. I've really enjoyed it at our household. I hope you guys have seen it. Um, as you know, I've been watching or listening to podcasts while I've been exercising, and, and uh, Jad Abumrod said he actually turned to an old episode about space to be encouraged and be filled with hope in these days. He, he thought the idea of understanding how tiny we as human beings are, how, how minuscule, minuscule we are in the scope of the universe put things into perspective during these days of this pandemic. I'm not so sure it affected me that way. He gave these two stats that kind of just shocked me. He said that if we as human beings were traveling to the fourth closest star to our earth, just four stars away, that's it, the fourth closest one, and if we were traveling at a million miles an hour, it would still take us 30,000 years to get there. Isn't that unbelievable? Then he also said, if you would imagine, he, he spoke to a, a, another scientist who tried to put the scope of the history of the universe in, in play. He said that if you would imagine that every step that you take is 70 million years, and he imagined that you start and you take 100 steps, and then your next 
step is the step that contains the life in which we live. He said on one breadth of hair in the middle of that step, just one width, the size of a breadth of hair, on one side of that breadth you get the dinosaurs, and on the other side of that hair's breadth you get human beings. <laughs> I remember listening to this, and almost my stomach fell out and said, wow, I can't imagine drawing comfort from the way in which that makes me as a human being feel so small. And it made me wonder this week, where have you been turning for comfort these days? What is the thought that allows you to make it through one more day of social isolation? One more day of Zoom calls? One more day of homework online? Is it the reruns of your favorite shows? I know for some in my household it is. Maybe it's your favorite sports moments that you've gone back to. What keeps you from the end of the spectrum of reaction? You know those two ends that we're all struggling with. The paralyzing fear that we have in these days or the flippant disregard. Where is your hope? Is it in a vaccine? Is it in warmer weather or simply sunshine? I don't know if I remember a time in my life when the prospect of death so dominated our shared social psyche as it does presently. And it's amazing the lengths to which we have gone, isn't it? To isolate ourselves from death. But I don't know about you, sometimes to me it feels like we have been isolated with death instead. I'm not trying to say anything about the people with whom you've chosen to isolate yourself. Trust me, that's not what I'm getting after. But let me ask you another question. How obvious is that object of your hope to others? Could other people name your hope, that which you put your hope in? Are the choices that you make daily consistent with the hope which you claim governs your life? In fact, that might be a good definition for an authentic life right there, wouldn't it? Our passage today highlights for us the object of Paul's hope, the singular reality by which he orders his life. Luke shows us this by finally answering Claudius Lysias's question that he's been trying to ask for the last two days. Why are the Jewish leaders demanding that Paul die? In fact, Paul himself answers the tribune's question. What is his answer? Is his life consistent with his claim? And if Paul's answer is the answer that all Christians should have, what aspects of Paul's life should we see in our own lives? Let me cut to the chase. Let me give you the answer from the very beginning, okay? The object of Paul's hope, it's, he says it right here. The object of his hope, the reason for which he is on trial is in verse 6. He says the object of Paul's hope is the resurrection of the dead and the deliverance from death that that implies in Christ. And his hope manifests itself in his integrity, his morality, his love, and his courage. And listen, for the next couple of minutes, I hope to convince you that, the object, that if the object of Paul's hope is the object of our hope, namely the resurrected Jesus, 
Our lives should be marked by the same integrity and morality, love and courage that marked Paul's life here. Let me try. Give me just a second. Our passage opens in verse 30. Do you see it? Open the Bible, look down at it, read it. And it tells us that Claudius Lysias, you can read his name in verse 26 of this same chapter in 23, chapter 23, verse 26, that Claudius wakes up to the reality that he still doesn't know why there was a riot yesterday in the temple. And he doesn't know what this man Paul had done. And he doesn't know why the Jews were trying to kill him. He asked to know Paul. He asked to know, rather, what Paul had done when he arrested Paul, and he couldn't get a straight answer. He then decided that he would get it out of Paul from the last chapter, chapter 22, via torture. He was going to have him flogged. But he stopped once he found out that Paul was a Roman citizen. So Claudius Lysias decided to call a special meeting of the elders of the Jewish leaders called the Sanhedrin. And they had demanded the death sentence. They had said in chapter 22, 22, away with him. This guy doesn't deserve to live on the earth. And Claudius Lysias would have had to have approved it. Well, maybe it's just like in my house, third time's a charm. Whenever you want an answer to any question, third time's a charm. Verse chapter 23, 1 says that Paul, who is introduced in Luke's way of saying that the Holy Spirit was with him, and let me show you that, both times in the past when Paul was said to have looked intently at someone, he was either pronouncing judgment like he did against Elimus in chapter 13, or he healed somebody like the lame guy in chapter 14. But either way, the Holy Spirit is recognized as being present. And here, Paul takes charge of this trial and he tells the council this. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in good conscience up to this day. Meaning, I have acted with integrity. I have lived faithfully. He says, even when persecuting the church, and he references this in chapter 26, he says, even when persecuting the church, he persecuted the way he was convinced he was doing the right thing. Paul, in saying this, isn't claiming that he was sinless, but rather that he has been authentic his entire life. He has lived consistently, he says. And the exchange which follows is exhibition A for this claim of integrity. What happens? Well, Paul says this, and immediately he's punched in the face. Paul is punched in the face. The high priest orders somebody else to punch Paul in the face. But Paul turns around and he says, look, you can't punch me in the face. He judges the punch as unlawful. It wasn't according to the law of God that he was already deemed guilty even before he had been able to plead his case. Paul ends up cursing the one who ordered it and he actually calls him out as a hypocrite. He uses this phrase, a whitewashed wall that is probably from Exodus or Ezekiel rather 13, a term which refers to somebody who is masquerading as one thing, but is actually something else entirely. When he was informed that it was the high priest who ordered him to be punched in the face, Paul is the one, again, who references the law as to why he himself, Paul, shouldn't have spoken that way to the high priest. But the interesting thing is his words still stand. 
Paul is portrayed as the one who acts faithfully toward the law. In fact, everything that we know about Ananias from extra-biblical literature supports Paul's assessment of him. Ananias was known to be a high priest appointed by Herod. He was a political pawn, and he practiced corruption anytime he had a chance, and his corrupt politics were as known even as far away as Rome. Paul's integrity and his obligation to the law, his morality, stands in sharp relief to his accusers in this passage. What generated this in Paul? I think that our next set of verses helps answer that question. In verses 6 through 10, look at them there with me if you will. Claudius Lysias' question, why did the Jews seek Paul's death, is answered with clarity and demonstrates Paul's compassion, his love. Paul doesn't simply seek to defend himself in this situation, but rather he engages his accusers, even now hoping for their conversion. Paul rejects that he is against the people and the law and the temple, as the Jews from Asia had claimed in chapter 21, and he also rejects that he who had just undergone the acts for purification, that he had defiled the temple by bringing in Gentiles. Rather, Paul focuses his hope on the reality of the resurrection of the dead and the deliverance from death that that brings, which Jesus' appearance to him proved beyond any shadow of doubt. And Paul longed for his brothers, his fellow Jewish leaders, to hear it and to see it. He knew that this subject of the resurrection was a sharp arrow, and he used it in hopes of bringing them to faith, those whom he loved. Again, he addresses them as brothers, and he cries out in verse 6, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with regard to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Paul uses this literary device of two words to describe one thing here, to portray that one reality by these two phrases, the hope and the resurrection of the dead, this one reality of resurrection that results in deliverance from death. He is saying, listen, I've been consistent my whole life as a Pharisee, and this hope of resurrection in which God's people are delivered, which we Pharisees, and I know some of you are Pharisees, which we believe in, this has been proved to me by Jesus himself. And this is why I'm on trial. It drives everything I have done and everything I'm doing. I will bear witness to the reality of the resurrection, Paul says. Paul knew that this was a hot button and he knew that this issue was the way to their hearts. Verse 6 tells us that Paul's attention was drawn to the division among them, some Sadducees and some Pharisees. Though the history of these two groups is very complex, it is well documented that the Sadducees, who only believed in the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible, they only believed that the Torah was authoritative. These Sadducees denied the resurrection of the dead. Luke had already informed Theophilus, the one to whom he was writing, of this fact in his first letter, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. The Sadducees lived for this life. 
and expected a Messiah that would set the Jews free once and for all in this present life. The thought of life after death was denied by the Sadducees. This led them to align themselves with whatever political authority showed the most promise of bringing about the freedom and the salvation they desired here and now. That, that doesn't sound so foreign, does it? The Pharisees, at least since the time of the Babylonian exile, had come to have hope in the resurrection of the dead and the judgment of the just and the unjust. Their belief in the resurrection grew out of their understanding of Daniel's prophecies written in chapter 12 of Daniel when God's people would be delivered. When, as Daniel says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting corruption. Here's the interesting thing. The Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, only contains shadows of the concept of resurrection and deliverance to life beyond this world. Think of the characters that you can think of with me from the Old Testament. Enoch and Elijah, these two guys, neither of whom experienced death. And those few texts like Isaiah 25 and 26, where Isaiah says, quote, that God will swallow up death forever and the Lord will wipe away every tear from all faces. And in chapter 26, he says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in dust awake and sing for joy. These were shadows of the concept of, of resurrection. It wasn't until Jesus came and declared to the Sadducees, no less, that their denial of the resurrection was wrong. After all, he said, God who called himself Lord, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, isn't the God of the dead, but he was the God of the living. Jesus brought what was from the shadows of the Old Testament to the light in his words and in his very person. When Martha declared to Jesus that she believed that her dead brother Lazarus would rise again in the resurrection on the last day, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus spoke of the resurrection and the judgment of all people who would be divided into sheep and goats. The resurrection has come to life, you might say. Come on, that was a good one. And Jesus, it had come to life. And of this, Paul was convinced, thanks to his encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. The story that he had told just the day before in chapter 22, verses 6 and following. Paul wasn't trying to divide the council with theological abstraction of the law. He wasn't trying to save his own skin, though that's all Elysius heard. How unlike Paul that would be, the Paul that Luke has revealed up to this point, the Paul that wanted to go into Athens, that begged to go before the riot in Ephesus, and that didn't mind being beaten in Philippi. No, Paul was going to use this trial, the one that might very well lead to his death, to proclaim again to his fellow Jews, his brothers, that the person and the work of Jesus Christ fit into their theology. And Paul wasn't 
going to allow his own personal safety to get in the way of such an opportunity. Paul proclaims the hope in the resurrection of the dead as the reason for the riot, the answer to Claudius Elysius's question, and for the demands of his death because he loved his fellow Jews more than he loved his own life. Finally, how the resurrection results in Paul's courage. Luke tells us in verse 11, the resurrected Jesus stood by him. So far, like Jesus, during his trial, no one had stood by Paul. Jesus reminds Paul that his life is a testimony to the facts about him, Jesus, not about Paul. And the resurrected Jesus assures Paul. He speaks courage into Paul to enable him to continue to testify about the resurrection all the way to Rome. And as we see in the following speeches that Paul gives, the resurrection of the dead and specifically his deliverance offered in Jesus Christ is front and center. So Christian, if our only hope is like Paul's in the resurrection of the dead and deliverance from death through Jesus Christ, because of the life Jesus lived for us and the death Jesus died for us and the defeat of death proclaimed in Jesus' resurrection, I want to ask you this question. Are you known for your integrity, your morality, your love, and your courage? The hope of the Christian faith in the resurrection of the dead and deliverance from death for all who have trusted in Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life generates integrity. It allows us to honestly assess ourselves. It allows us to live authentic lives, known to those who know us as ones who need salvation, just like Paul. We can admit our present fear and our anxiety, our demands for control, and we can confess the means by which we seek escape from our fears. All those ways other than trusting in Christ. Have you confessed any of these to anybody lately? Our hope in the resurrection and deliverance from death because of Jesus should also lead us to value the law, to live moral lives. One, we know it's what pleases God. But two, it highlights for a watching world the demands that God makes on all humans and the fulfillment of those demands in Jesus offered to anyone who would receive Christ's righteousness by faith. Because the resurrection and deliverance from death is real, living morally highlights the person and the work of Jesus, both in our moments of success and in our moments of failure. The law matters. Our hope in the resurrection and deliverance from death also generates in us love for others. Listen, I don't have to tell you this. You already know it. The weight of death now, today, is real. 
which when we grasp that reality allows us to sacrifice our freedoms for others that they might live and hear or even live to hear of the hope of salvation through Jesus Christ. A flippant disregard for human life is not acceptable for the Christian. Jesus wept in the presence of death even though he knew that he would defeat death because he loved human beings. Are we among those who are willing to grieve with those who grieve, but to grieve with hope? But equally unrealistic for one whose hope is in the resurrection and the deliverance from death is paralyzing fear. And listen, you need to pick your head up now and give me two more minutes. That's all that's left. Remember, death is not the end. When we live in fear, our fear is focused on ourselves and on our lives, on life as an end in and of itself, not on Jesus. Our fear blinds us from loving others as our lives more sharply focused on the hope of the resurrection and deliverance from death through Jesus our love for people will lead us to more willingly give our lives away. And finally, our hope in the resurrection delivers us from death. Our hope in the resurrection and deliverance from death results in courage because we are not left alone to generate courage. It is rather the work of the Holy Spirit who has been shed abroad in our hearts, reminding us of God's love for us. Paul will tell the Romans that this hope does not put us to shame because God has sent us an encourager. Listen, I've always found it interesting what people find encouraging. <laughs> One time, Mita attended a workout in which the trainer was known to encourage through, let's just say, negative feedback, all right? Uh, through laughter, the entire class took it on the chin. They figured that they were identifying with Marines and it made them work harder. This is all fine as long as life is pretend. But when you find yourself face to face with death, in all of its unflinching certainty, there is only one hope offered that can unravel the emotional knot of fear and foreboding that keeps you distant. And that hope is the resurrection and the life. Jesus Christ, who says, whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Please pray with me.